Hey guys, what you're about to hear is an interview I did with Mark Summers. Um, it was beyond fun. The very first question I asked him, he was having some internet issues and I was way too scared to say anything to him, but luckily he noticed and fixed it. So beyond the first question, the audio is perfect. So I really hope you guys enjoy this and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Later. It was a game show that shaped a generation. The slime. On your mark. The challenges. Get set. The mom jeans. Go! Now, the gang will reunite for a special one-night event. Join host Mark Summers for a celebration of one of the most iconic shows of the 90s. This is sloppier than you on a Saturday night. All the cameos. All the insider access. This is embarrassing stuff. None of the annoying 90s camera angles. Don't miss a new Double Dare special. This Thanksgiving on Tonight and The Splat. Welcome to Cassandra Explains It All, a podcast where we take a magnifying glass to all of our treasures from the past. If you grew up in the 90s, you know that it didn't get better on a hot summer day than beating the heat in your living room by cheering on kids at Nickelodeon Studios. You may have wanted a trip to space camp or to get slimed. Either way, the sound of Mark Summers' voice cheering kids through the obstacle course of childhood is unforgettable. So Mark, Hey, and this means a lot to myself and everyone listening. So thank you for being a good sport and letting me ask you some questions tonight. It's my pleasure. It's midnight where you are and you seem, uh, you know, like you're very fresh and ready to go. So I'm applauding you for doing that because I know you've got kids and have been uh, working hard all day. So congratulations on pulling this off and looking uh, as uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed as you do. Thank you. Well, I love it. It's my passion. And so... That's what it's all about. <laughs> and I just thank you for showing up. Passion is what it's all about. Yep. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And a lot of you may know Mark from Double Dare. What would you do? My personal favorite, or because <laughs> I'm a weirdo, <laughs> the longest running show on the Food Network, Unwrapped. But what some people may not know, he actually is an accomplished comedy writer, a producer, comedian, magician, talk show host, and even a news reporter. But did you know he actually began his career doing radio? Uh, Mark, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in radio? You know, at a very young age, there was a kid down the street, Dave Lawton, who was in the uh, Magic Club at West Lane Junior High. And I was only in about fifth grade and couldn't wait to get to West Lane and become a member of the Magic Club, which I eventually did. And so there was a big magic convention. It was uh, 1966, I think, in Indianapolis. And we were walking to uh, one of the uh, big shows uh, in the theater that night. And a guy stopped us and said, uh, who can teach me magic? And I said, well, what's your name? And he said, uh, he told me what it is. I'm not going to mention it for various reasons. But um and uh, I said, uh, oh, you're on the radio. Uh, if you teach me how to get on the radio, I'll teach you magic. So that was the deal I made. And I would sort of tutor this guy in magic tricks. And he was working um, at two stations, WIRE, doing uh, all nights. And then he was uh, working as basically an engineer on weekends, 6 to 11, at a station in Elwood, Indiana, WBMP, which was an FM station. And uh, I was too young to drive, so he would drive me up there. And on weekends from 6 to 11, uh, I was doing uh, the news, rip and read uh, on the uh, uh, teletype. And then I was playing, you know, Frank Sinatra, 101 Strings, Montevani Records, Perry Como, things like that. 
And on weekends, I was playing DJ and I thought, you know, this is the best gig in the world. That's amazing. That's so cool. Did you lose me? Um, it cut out a little bit, just a tiny bit. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome experience. And I find it fascinating that you're going by a lot of different oh. names too when you were doing radio. Oh yeah, Mark Vaughn. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the names I used back in the day. Is this any better? Yeah, that does seem better. Okay, good. Um, yeah, uh, the guy at WBMP in Elwood, Indiana, who was the general manager, I didn't like Jewish people. And my real name is Mark Berkowitz. And I was told I couldn't be Mark Berkowitz. So I initially became Mark Vaughn. I don't know why. I don't remember. Then I think I was uh, Mark Monroe. Um, I'm, try I'm trying to think what all the silly names that I had. And, you know, back in the day, it used to be one syllable first names and two syllable last names uh if you were a, 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 an on-air personality which works out perfect for mark summers you know so yeah i uh i tried all those things and you know you experiment along the way and sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't and it really worked and mark summers the name is like lightning in a bottle somehow it's <laughs> perfect and um it's fascinating because it's all in a name i like that it's very dick van dyke um <laughs> it reminds me, you know what i mean that's funny and that's who that's my three is like you dick van dyke and uh alan thick of course uh, <laughs> so. wow i knew them all uh dick uh, had an uh, interesting situation with i was invited to uh when he got his star on the walk of fame i was invited because uh nick and knight sponsored it and i was working at nick at the time and oh, so cool. he got a star on the walk of fame and then there was a big lunch afterwards and I was sitting at a different table, needless to say. And I mean, there was a who's who of show business. It was, you know, uh, Carl Reiner and all the people, Rosemarie, Maury Amsterdam, all the people you would imagine were there. And at one point I'm having lunch with a bunch of people at the table from uh, Nickelodeon and uh, Dick comes over to me and says, excuse me, I have no idea who you are or why you're here, but my grandkids want to meet you. Oh, and they so were sweet. all Nick fans. And, uh, and so I took pictures and signed autographs uh, with them. And, uh, and Alan Thicke, I knew, um, he uh, was an interesting guy as well. Um, there's an interview that's online that I did with him uh, not too long ago that uh, popped up there. And um, I had been to his house and whatever. He was a talented man in many ways. I first met him when he was uh, producing, I think it was Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And I was, um, is it Mary Hartman? It was one of those kind of, yeah, I think maybe that was it. And uh, I was auditioning to be a writer, which I didn't get the job on. But, you know, he wrote music and uh, hosted shows and he was quite a talented guy. Absolutely. Wow. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. So you actually gave a TED talk about comedy and censorship of free speech. It's something that I'm very passionate about, too. And um, was it scary to take a stand one way or another on a subject like that that seemed so divisive? Um, I've never been scared about that stuff. I got beat up pretty bad. If you look at the comments on that uh, TEDx talk, uh, people accused me of being a racist and, and all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, uh, that's what makes the world go around. You know, the thing about the internet is uh, everybody has an opinion. And, uh, you know, you either just sort of look the other way, which is what I tend to do. I don't get ruffled by, you know, people trashing me. You know, it's interesting. Every six months, for some reason, Esquire re-releases my Tonight Show with uh, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> and I've told this story 150,000 times yeah. that it wasn't staged, it wasn't fixed. I had no idea it was going to happen. Burt was in a pissy mood. You know, and everybody accuses me of being a liar and 
I, you know, uh, I came back too quick with my uh, responses. I started as a stand-up comic and I just looked at it as he was a heckler or whatever. But as many times as I've defended myself and told the truth, there's these morons uh, who feel that they know better than me after I experienced it that says, you know, I'm a liar and I never happened the way it did or whatever. So at some point you just walk away because uh, it's just stupid to even get into a debate uh, with these folks. So, but the craziest thing about that clip is, um, is Jay Leno's reaction. He just Which is pretty of... much no reaction. He doesn't, he lost control of the program. He yeah, was, was very, it was very early on when he took over the show and he had no idea how to control it. You know, Johnny would have been much better at it. But, uh, you know, Jay just sitting there like a bump on a log and, and somehow lost control while me and Bert were, you know, going at it. Yeah, it's very bizarre. But definitely one of the things that always gets brought up in interviews, for sure. Um, I did have an interview question, but I kind of just wanted to pick your brain about uh, meeting Steven Spielberg. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, we were opening uh, Nick's studios and it was my job to uh, slime him. <laughs> and uh he couldn't have been nicer you know he was responsible for helping put uh universal studios in orlando together That's so he so had a lot cool. going on that day and needless to say didn't necessarily have to spend time with us but he did was very nice and uh just a down-to-earth guy and i remember i ran into him somewhere afterwards i think i was at some uh dinner honoring uh robin williams and i ran into steven again and the first thing he said to me was hey how are you how's your family you know he was asking me about about my kids and uh and my wife and you know he's, he's not mr showbiz he's just uh, a down-to-earth husband and dad and that's always been very impressive to me that is that is really impressive and i think that's a part of why people love you so much too is that like a lot of our childhood stuff has been tarnished or destroyed for us in some way but you are <laughs> a family guy um you know you're a good guy you've gone through your own struggles yourself and you can kind of be an example of hope and how to just like keep persevering in my opinion yeah, thanks. Yeah, I've been married 47 years. I have a uh, son in his 40s. My daughter's uh, 38 now. I have two grandkids. And, you know, I just try to live somewhat of a normal life. The old deal about just because you're in show business doesn't make it special. And uh, the other line I like to use is it's nice to be important, but more important to be nice. And, and if you can use whatever notoriety you have to help other individuals, that's certainly more important. Yeah, that's a good philosophy to live by is to be kind. Okay, so this is kind of a silly one, but the veracity in which they produced those uh, episodes of Double Dare and Figure It Out, pretty intense and amazing. And also just to point out, hasn't really been duplicated since, but I'm no. just curious. And I know this is a silly question, but did you ever lose your voice? You know, I never did. Um, I've always had, well, I started off in theater and um, and when you sing, you have to sing in the proper way so that you don't blow your voice out. And so I use that same technique uh, when I was doing shows. And uh, sometimes we would do upwards of six shows a day, five days a week, 30 shows a week. I never lost my voice. Uh, it's interesting, though, because when we went and did the, the most recent shows, when Liza Koshy, Liza Koshy was hosting, she lost her voice one day. And I had to jump in in the middle of the show and take over. Uh, because no matter what I told her to do on how to properly use it, she, she didn't do it. And she would become very hoarse because we were only doing, I think so scary. Maybe we were doing three shows a day and she was having a hard time doing that. That's, that's really a talent. That's really interesting to me. Okay. This one is for my Nickelodeon fans out there. Did you keep any of the props from all of the shows that you worked on at Nickelodeon? Don't go away. You know who this guy is? Who is that? 
Well, there's an episode, uh, and you can find it online, where I totally lost my mind and couldn't stop laughing because Jeffrey Darby, our exec producer, took this little guy and put it in every obstacle. And for some reason, I was in the goofiest mood uh, I've ever been. And every time this thing would pop up in an obstacle, I just was, I was crying. It's amazing. I mean, I talk. So yeah, uh, I, I do have this. Let's see, what else do I have here? It's the uh, canoe boy. Let me see. That was a, uh, what would you do hat? Oh, cool. I have, uh, let's see, this is a more recent uh, Double, Double Dare, Dare Live. Live. And then this is an older one. Hold on, don't go away. I uh, wasn't expecting this, so I'm a little unprepared. This is from uh, one of the original tours back in the 90s. Uh, oh, wow. That's really yeah, cool. That's a uh, Double Dare Live thing there. Yeah, so, so I'm yeah, glad you brought that up. Maybe you can clear something up for me. I sure. have a memory and I'm not sure if it's real or if it's just a fever dream I distinctly remember hearing that Nickelodeon was going to be at the mall and forcing my mom to take me and I could have swore Mark Summers was there and it was like you know you can come up and do a bubblegum blowing contest and win a prize and I can't find any record of this ever happening on the internet is that a thing that happened yeah 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 we we started off doing mall tours Okay. And so what happened was we would play malls and there would be upwards of five, six, seven thousand people at these malls. And then the malls couldn't function. The stores were upset. The only people that were happy are the people at the food courts. So they figured if we could draw five, six, seven thousand people in a mall, uh, maybe we should move to theaters. And then we started selling out 20,000 seat theaters, uh, Palace of Auburn Hills in Detroit and places like that on a regular basis um, because the show was wow. just so hot. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we did. It went from a mall tour to uh, to in the theaters. Yeah, I was a lucky kid then because I <laughs> I was probably six years old and all the kids were like 10 years old. And yeah. you I still you let me up there and or whoever let me up there, you know, and my mom was so embarrassed. She's like, oh, my God, <laughs> you, you, can't, she, you can't even blow a bubble. You've never done that. You can't get into the contest to do it. And I'm like, oh, yes, I can. This is Mark Summers. Watch me. OK, that's great. So I got up there and I couldn't do it. Right. I didn't know how. And you walked up to me and you were like okay, you know, let's see your bubble. And I don't know how to blow a bubble. <laughs> so you coached me for about a minute and said, okay, yeah. this is what you do, you know? And I did it. And I blew my first bubble right there on stage. Very nice. And was this in Florida? Yeah. Do you remember where in Florida? Clear, uh, Countryside Mall, it's called. Yeah, we, we used to play down there a lot. I know we played Orlando and we played all sorts of places long before the Nick Studios were there. So uh, yeah, that, that happened. That actually yeah, happened. Yeah, I thought, man, and I couldn't find anything about it online. And I'm like, did I make this up? Yeah, it was real. <laughs> That's awesome. And I know you probably get stories like that all the time, actually. Um, and, you know, one thing is I wanted to ask, most people listening to this would not be able to pick like Johnny Carson out of a lineup, but I guarantee almost any American would recognize your voice. And because of the way that people have this like parasocial relationship with celebrities, it can that be strange for you sometimes or like uncomfortable? It's not uncomfortable necessarily, but it'll be weird. I'll be talking to my wife in Nordstrom and somebody will turn around and go, wow, I, I, I didn't even see you, but I recognize your voice. And I don't think about myself having a distinctive voice, but apparently I do. Because all the time, Ryan Seacrest always says, you know, Summers, when, when people get older, when they get to your age, uh, they don't sound the same. They get sort of all creaky in their voice. But he said, you sound exactly the same as when I was a kid. And it is kind of weird. 
that, uh, you know, I'll be 70 in November, but everybody says I sound exactly the same as when they were growing up watching me. So, you know, I, I guess it's just a gift. I don't know. I, it's nothing I, I worked at, but uh, maybe the proper use of, of uh, you know, projecting my voice and, and all that uh, paid off. But it just makes me laugh when people say I recognize your voice before I even saw you. So vocal training definitely is like something you want to invest in to your own craft if you're if you're going to think so. voice. I think it's real important, you know, uh, if you're going to host anything, because, you, you know, you kind of have to talk from the gut. If you if you talk from your throat, you're screwed because you're going to, you know, go hoarse in about 10 seconds. And uh, yeah, I've never had any problem uh, with that, because once again, I was doing theater when I was I don't know, how old was I? Maybe, I don't know, 11, 12, 13 years old. And uh, one of the things they, they teach you about singing is, you know, proper use of, of your, you know, vocal cords and singing from, you know, the diaphragm and all that stuff. And it, it paid off in many ways for me. That's very interesting. Very cool. Thank you. So a little more than 20 years ago, you wrote a successful book. Will you ever write another book just chronicling the ups and downs of your life and divulging some delicious stories from the Food Network days and like crazy behind the scenes Nickelodeon stuff? I had lunch uh, yesterday with a dear friend here, a chef, and and he was asked, I get asked this question a lot, and I, I told him a couple of stories about how I was in the Navy and got thrown out after 28 days, and I've got all these quirky, crazy stories of my life for whatever reason, you know, these things just happen, and he said, you know, you really should write a book, and I, I, my feeling is nobody really cares uh, you know, I don't think people read as much. I guess they listen to, uh, you know, books on tape or what stuff. But I, I'm not so sure that what I have to say is that interesting. Uh, and he keeps telling me I'm wrong. Several people tell me I'm wrong. So I don't think so. When I wrote Everything in Its Place, um, it was the hardest work I ever did for the least amount of money. And I'm not sure I'm willing to go through that pain again of, you know, uh, dealing with uh, editors and writing and rewriting and, and delivering on dates and stuff. So it doesn't interest me a whole bunch. I'm working on maybe doing a podcast. Uh, I just shot a pilot uh, for a new podcast. Um, and uh, we'll see if that gets sold because it's, I think, an interesting concept, but we'll see. That'd be amazing. <laughs> That'd be so cool. Yeah. I mean, we're all a big fan of Clickstein facts around here. So I think you can't go wrong, especially if you read the audio book, right? That would be perfect. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So what is it like, you know, what's it like to transition from being on screen hosting and, you know, doing the wraparounds for Food Network and then going to the production side of it behind the camera? I fell into that. I never wanted to be a producer, um, but um, I got called. I was at a point in my life where I wasn't working a whole bunch. We had finished shooting Unwrapped and I wasn't uh, working a lot. And I got a phone call from a friend who I went to college with who owned a production company in uh, Philadelphia and said, uh, we shoot commercials and do a lot of uh, political ads, but uh, can you get us in television? I went, I don't know. And I won't go through the story because it's way too long, but eventually we started off with Dinner Impossible and I was exec producer and helped launch Robert Irvine's career. And then that turned into Restaurant Impossible. And I think the fact that I was first a writer on game shows and, you know, started off thinking I was a magician, I was a stand-up comic, then I was a writer on game shows, then I hosted game shows. Um, and then I hosted all sorts of stuff. You know, I hosted talk shows on Lifetime and I did a show called History IQ, a very hard game show on History Channel and on and on and on. And so I had sort of a plethora of experience. So when the opportunity came to uh exec produced dinner impossible it, it kind of came to me easily because i had done all that stuff as a producer i started producing double dare year three or four 
and uh, learned how to edit, learn how to build stories and put shows together. And um, it, it was pretty easy. And I was able to help build Irvine's career. He came to me and said, I have no idea what I'm doing. Teach me. And uh, I've had three students. Ryan Seacrest was my first student. Robert was my second. And Guy Fietti was my third. And I'm pretty proud of that group of people who I help uh you know, build careers. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm surprised to hear that you don't like it behind the camera as much, but I guess not surprised too. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh. You know, what? what's your talent? It's like a disease. I wish I didn't want to do it as much as I do, but for some reason, you know, it's, it's my passion. Right. You actually didn't audition for Nickelodeon until you were 33, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, so before that, do you have any favorite memories from those years of stand-up, like at the improv or the comedy store in 76? Well, um, I worked at a place called The Laugh Stop, and I was the opening act for Gallagher. Do you know who Gallagher is? Mm -mm. Gallagher was a very famous prop comic, and um, I was his opening act, but I was doing magic. I wasn't doing stand-up at the time, and he was the one who explained to me. He said, how much are you getting paid summers to open for me? And it was, I think, a four or five night gig. And this was back in, oh my God, late 70s, I guess. And uh, and I said, 150 bucks. And he goes, you're a real jerk. And I said, why? And he says, because you're a novelty act. When you go out there cutting and restoring ropes and playing uh, you know, card tricks, uh, they think of you as a novelty act. But stand-ups, guys who are just comedians who for me get 300 bucks. So I started to wean myself away from magic and started to do just stand-up comedy because I got paid twice as much. And so I worked the comedy store. I worked the place called the Laugh Stop. Uh, I worked the improv. Uh, I did some touring. And um, I guess the best foundation was when I did warm-ups on TV shows. Uh, I was a warm-up announcer on Alice, Star Search, Soap, What's Happening Now, uh, I, so many shows. I, I had this title in Hollywood as being the king of warm-ups. In fact, at, when I was doing Soap uh, at Sunset Gower Studios, to the right of us was another studio uh, where they were shooting a show called Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks, and Bob Saget was the uh, warm-up announcer on that show, and on the other side of the stage, they were shooting Barney Miller, and Dave Letterman was doing the warm-ups on that show. So, so many of us got started as warm-up announcers. And it was probably the greatest foundation because you were out there for hours at a time. You know, people turn on TV and see a sitcom uh, done in a half hour. But it generally takes three, four, five hours to shoot those things. And, you know, they'll shoot two minutes and stop and then shoot five minutes and stop. And all that dead time, somebody's got to be out there keeping the audience alive. And that was my job. And it was, it was probably the best training. So, you know, when you're going through it, you don't realize half the fun is getting there and you're learning your trade, learning your craft. Uh, and, and that's why when I got the audition for Double Dare when I was 33, I was really ready. If I would have moved out to Los Angeles and got that opportunity when I was in my 20s, I wouldn't have ever gotten it. But I was seasoned and, and had a background as a writer, as a producer, as talent. And that job just kind of, you know, fit me perfect and uh, it became what it became. That seems like such a grueling job. I mean, that's got to be tough, yeah. really tough. And the talent you work with sometimes is very difficult. B. Arthur, I was doing a pilot for her once at ABC, and uh, she went to the producers and told me uh, that I had to shut up, uh, just sit in the corner, don't say a word the rest of the night, and they would pay me anyway. And it's because, uh, I can say this, I was funnier than the material in the show. And she didn't like the fact that I was getting bigger laughs than her. So she said, tell that uh, she didn't use the word young man. She used another term, uh, but she basically got me to shut up. So, um, you know, the experiences I've had with celebrities throughout the years 
there might be an interesting book there because some of the things mm-hmm. I've experienced have, have been pretty odd. Yeah. Anybody listening to this that wants to see interesting interviews, I just implore you to get on YouTube because not only have you given lots of interesting interviews, you've also done lots of interesting interviews. So there's plenty of that out there. That's for sure. I've discovered a bunch of stuff. I have, I had a warehouse, uh, which I've been going through and getting rid of stuff. And I discovered every uh, thing I've ever done on television. I recorded everything. Uh-huh. And I found interviews that I don't even remember doing. Um, with Alex Trebek, with Pat Sajak, with Regis Philbin. Um, and so you'll see those on my Facebook and Instagram over the next you know year. But um, I didn't even remember half these things. It was fascinating to look at them. And you know, I was pretty raw back in the day. I had no idea what I was doing, but somehow I got the jobs. And uh, it's fun to look at those now to realize how far I've come from those days. I put up something yesterday on my Facebook uh, an interview, one of my first interviews with Gary Collins when I was doing Our Magazine, and I was horrible. Uh, but I guess you need a place to start, and I was in a situation where the producers and the talent were nice enough to sort of help me along, and uh, you know, it paid off. I love that. Oh yes, yeah. So it's no secret that you have had a very successful career, and even had a documentary about you called On Your Mark. Um, but what really inspires you to keep going when things are, you know, not so great in life? I, you know, I've always had a passion for entertainment. And um, I've been a pretty positive guy. You know, if you want to motivate Mark Summers, tell him no or tell him he can't do it or he's not, you know. One of the final things I'd really like to do is be in a Broadway show. And I I recently, right before COVID, auditioned for my first Broadway show uh, for the the show Diner, or Waitress, sorry. Uh, And I was auditioning to be the guy who owned the diner. And uh, the feedback came back from the talent uh, people, from the casting directors, that I was not believable. They want this character to be like an older gentleman and, you know, sort of creaky and this and that. And they said, there ain't nobody's going to buy you as this guy. You come across as somebody who's maybe in their you know early 50s and you have too much energy. And so, uh, you know, they passed on me. And, and uh, you know, I, in some ways it's a compliment, you know, it's, it's sort of frustrating, um, but, you know, hopefully there's still time, you know, who knows with COVID, you know, Broadway trying to get back uh, on its feet and, you know, everything keeps, you know, starting and stopping. So it, it's, it's peculiar time. So I don't know, I'm, I've always been highly motivated and hopefully that will retain. I've always had a lot of energy. Um, you know, I've been, my thing during COVID is I, I walk five miles every day. Uh, to kind of keep my energy up and try to keep my uh, health going uh, because we're all sort of locked down and I'm lucky because I live in a beautiful area and I'm able to walk by the ocean and and uh, sort of contemplate my navel as I uh, look out at the water and uh, you know kind of keeps me going. I like that and I think you are such a positive person. People that are drawn to 90s Nickelodeon are definitely a very specific millennial type but of course you have fans that run the gambit. My audience has been very kind where they followed me from Nickelodeon over to Food Network right you know and I've had this 20-year relationship with Food Network you know first as talent and then uh, you know as producer so uh, it's been it's been a fun career. I know people say to me which do you enjoy more, the Nickelodeon years, the Food Network uh, years? And, you know, Nick got me, you know, on the map, and I'll always be grateful for that. But, you know, 20 years at Food Network, hanging out with the the Bobby Flays, the Rachel Rays, the Guy Fiettis of the world, uh, and eating at 
amazing restaurants. Um, it, it's been pretty fun. Mm-hmm. I have uh, zero complaints, trust me. Right. Yes. Yeah. And also there's just something to be said about programming that a whole family can watch together. All as the much shows as I love... moms and dads and kids have been able to sit and watch together, you know? Yeah. And just all the unwraps are so good. All of them. My kids love that show. So and this is, I guess this is my last question. It's a silly one. You know, would you ever play a role that's the total opposite of you, like a serial killer or something like that? I've wanted to. Um, a friend of mine is Mary Jo, the casting director of uh, Law and Order. And uh, oh. <laughs> I- I've been on my hands and knees begging to go on and be some, you know, crazy ass character uh, that is total opposite type. Uh, but so far, they haven't uh, bought into the, the concept. But yes, I think that would be amazing to be able to get a chance to, you know, uh, to play a mass murderer or you know just some something that people would never expect exactly. so you know, maybe someday that'll happen I, I keep trying but uh I, I keep striking out on it but who knows I I don't give up I would love to see that yes <laughs> I've been thinking about that all day I'm just like oh that would be the best movie the best movie <laughs> it would be fun it really yeah. would be well I think it's it's admirable that you are such a consummate professional and you know, I have this anecdote. I only bring it up because I think it speaks to my point that I watched an interview with you one time where um, somebody was interviewing you on your birthday. <laughs> so it's like you were willing to give an interview even on your birthday for work, which I find pretty amazing. What advice would you give to people out there who are success driven like that? Well, you know, you're lucky if you find a passion. Most people don't have a passion. They get up every morning and hate their job. And I can't imagine. I always say I've never worked a day in my life. So, you know, that's been fortunate, but I've worked hard at it. And, you know, people say to me, well, you know, if I want to be a stand-up comic or if I want to be a host, what do I do? And I said, well, then you need to go out and do comedy and you need to go out there and host. Uh, it just doesn't happen overnight. The, the phenomenon today is because of cell phones and iPads and everybody can do a podcast or anything they want and put it on, you know, TikTok or whatever, that I find uh, there are people much younger who are better at this then they should be at the age they are. But the opportunities are greater. You know, it used to be three networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, and a couple of syndicated shows uh, back in the day. But now there's, you know, 500 channels. And it's not as much about, uh, well, you better be on prime time at NBC on Thursday nights, otherwise nobody's going to see you. And nothing can be further from the truth. You know, when you get TikTok, uh, you know, videos that get uh, 20 million hits. So there are, are some overnight successes. But I had an agent who said to me once, you have to build a career from a, as a pyramid. Most people build their careers as an upside down pyramid and they wobble. But if you have a firm foundation and can back up your talent and it's built this way, then you're going to be around for a long time. So you got to be able to put in the work and, and be patient because, you know, there aren't that many, you know, you got to last. And you don't want to be a one-hit wonder or an, or an overnight success. It's better to have the foundation and do your homework and pay your dues. And then when the opportunity arises with me with Double Deer, then you're you're primed for it. And chances are it's going to go for a long time and turn into other things. But if you know, you know, when Dave Letterman first was a comedian at the comedy store and he started to hit, all of a sudden there were a bunch of people who started to imitate Dave. I saw it happen with him. I saw him happen happen with Robin Williams. And, you know, I used to say, there's already a Robin Williams. There's already a Dave Letterman. Figure out your own style. Figure out your own talent. Uh, doing an imitation of somebody that's already 
you know, successful, it's not original. So to be original and to put in the time is something most people aren't willing to do. And that's why there's so few people who are successful at it. Absolutely. I love that advice. And to that point, if, you know, thank you so much for doing this. And if you do, you know, start a podcast, please uh, put us on notice over here. I was really sad that I couldn't find On Your Mark online. And then I read that it was, you know, theatrical release and I was super pissed. I'm like, man. Yeah, we're still talking to people about distributing. In fact, uh, Adam Goldberg from the Goldbergs is uh, working with me now to try and get that thing distributed. So we'll see if that uh, happens or not. That would be wonderful. It's really good. It came out really well and I'm happy and Adam likes it and he's uh, been very supportive. So we'll see uh, see where that goes. We're working at it. Um, and on my podcast, the pilot we shot, we did it with Guy Fieri and it came out fantastic. So uh, That's so cool. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes. Well, you're quite good at what you do. I appreciate you taking the time this late at night uh, <laughs> and continue success. Are you kidding me? <laughs> For <laughs> sure. So I grew up every Saturday and Sunday, my dad was doing radio. That's so. great. Yeah. So you've been around it your whole life. Yeah. And once the pandemic started and going out wasn't an option anymore, I thought, well, I'm going to start a podcast. And I really, really, really enjoyed this. And how, how was Mitchell Kriegman? Oh, amazing. Gracious. And like I said, I didn't record the whole first, it was my like first interview ever. And I didn't hit record and I called him up crying right after. And he's like, don't worry. I'm always charming. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's a good guy. Very smart guy. Extremely talented man. Enjoy uh, your life and uh, don't uh, take your eye off the ball. You're quite good at what you do. And uh, it's, it's going to get better and better. I promise. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. And I wish you and your family the absolute best. You too. Have a nice evening. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.